Have you ever seen anyone like waffle in decisions before? I'm not sure if you saw the interaction with my daughter and I there, but um, you all did a great job continuing on. Children's church, children's notes, children's church, children's, what should I do? So, I guess she's made up her decision, so. Anyway, you can open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to finish chapter 4 today. Uh, It's going to segue us nicely into the Lord's Supper at the end of my message. It'll be a a wonderful time for us. I'm excited about this text. It, um, boy, really talks about the heart of the Gospel, talks about the heart of Christian living, that's for sure. As you're turning there, I I want you to, to think about the way that God has made the world. He's made the world in such a way that we all need help. As much as you try to be independent, and Americans love to be independent, I can just do this on my own, there are far too many things that you can't do on your own. I mean, if you start thinking about it, um, unless you're a farmer, you need others to raise food for you. You need the help of farmers. Unless you're a tailor, you need help making your clothes. Unless you're a mechanic, you need help with your automobile when it breaks down, particularly. And and those are just a few examples just scattered all throughout life. We are so dependent upon everybody else. When it comes to daily life, you you just can't do it. Why don't you think about your home and um, the way that God has made the world and God's providence. There are items in your home that break down from time to time. Right? You you know this, what I'm talking about? Carl, that's some of the things you do, right? You fix stuff for people, right? Well, I know in in my life, when I have problems with my home, there's one guy I call. I call Dirk Reed. He like knows everything about my home. In fact, I remember one time I was having problems with a water softener and we had some hard water and trying different things. Finally, I disassembled the thing and I took it out and I'm empty, as I'm emptying the salt on the end of the driveway, Dirk and Nancy drive up. They're doing something. I forget what it is. And Dirk, just a great heart that he has, says, yeah, well, what are you doing? He's like, Steve, you, you got this big thing. And what are you doing? And so he comes, he helps me. He tells me all about all those, the chemical or the sand inside the stuff. I don't even, still don't know what it's about and how it doesn't work. He's just maybe changing that and trying some things. And he, he knew all about water softeners and tried to help me with that. On another occasion, I had problems with the dryer. And uh, Andy crosses over one day and, and the Dirks just stopped by. It was after church sometime. I think they were driving home. We said, hey, let's call them. Let's have them for lunch. And so we call them in his dryer. And, and he was down there and he, he, he kind of looked at and he, he said, do you have an ohm meter? Like, How do you know you need an ohm meter to fix a dryer? And so he's, he's checking the, the resistance over the heating coil to try to figure out whether that's lighting up and everything. And I'm like, how do you know that? I said, he just knows this stuff. So, if any of you have problems, you can call Dirk, or you might call Carl as well. I'm sure there are others of you who are um, very gifted in the chat. I know you do a bunch of that stuff, managing apartment complex and things like that. But if, in my world, if I need help in my home, uh, Dirk, Dirk can do it all. But there are some things that Dirk can't do. If I'm sick, I don't call Dirk. Now, he might have a lot of worldly wisdom, but I don't call Dirk. Actually, there are two people that I... Nant, um, Darcy's one of them. She, I trust your advice, Darcy, medically. But also, uh, my father. My father's a physician. And uh, we are sick for some reason. We just call. If he doesn't know the particular difficulty, he pulls out his PDR, physician's desk reference, and just kind of looks it up and can interpret that stuff for us and help. 
Maybe you guys remember the time when I was skateboarding. Now, you know, I'm not a great skateboarder, but, but I can get up and down the hills a little bit. And this particular day, I'd taken my son, SR, and another uh, friend out skateboarding, and, and I was even kind of going up and down the ramps pretty well, but kind of towards the end of the day, I was up on about a four-foot ramp, went down, somehow caught my foot, and landed face foot. I, I skull-planted in, um, in the concrete. And I, I thought at first for sure I'd cracked my skull. It hit that hard and was worried about it, but apparently I've got a really hard head, so that, that wasn't a problem. But my wrist started, started hurting me, and so I, I drove home even with one hand. It's about 7.30 at night. I'm calling my dad. I said, Dad, I hurt myself, hurt my wrist. I don't know exactly what's, what's wrong with it. And so over the phone, he's in DeKalb. I'm up here. He says, okay, well, can you move it this way? Can you bend it this way? Can you do it? What about can you rotate it this way? And he says, Steve, you broke your radial head. I'm like, what's my radial head? He says, it's down in your, you broke your elbow. And I'm like, what are you talking about? My pain is all in the wrist. He says, I know, but I think you broke your elbow. So anyway, I wrapped it that night, went down to DeKalb, took an x-ray, and sure enough, I'd broken my elbow. How he knew I broke my elbow, maybe, maybe that's like a, a trivial thing, but, but he just knows when I have medical problems, I, I call my father. And the list there, the list goes on and on. If I have financial questions, I call Phil Gusky. If I have questions about my car, I talk to Mr. Bovey, uh, my neighbor, if I have questions about music, I ask my wife. And it goes on and on and on. If you have questions about different things, and none of us know it all. We all need other, we, we need each other to help us with our physical lives. But, here's the contrast to that. When it comes to our spiritual matters, there's one person who can handle all of our concerns. And who's that person? Kids? Colin, who is it? Yet more precisely, it's Jesus, right? The second person of the Godhead. He can help you in every situation in life. And here's here's something that makes it. it. It makes our faith so simple. We just merely need to look to Jesus. He's got the answers to our problems. He's got the help. My role as a pastor is is so simple. I can make it so hard sometimes. It's so simple. I just direct people to Jesus. I know I can't have all the answers. I don't have all the solutions to everything. But I just know that in Jesus we can find help for all of our spiritual problems in life. Indeed, that's the title of my message this morning, Finding Help. You can find it in Jesus. Let's read our passage there. Hebrews 4, 14-16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can see that very last phrase there in verse 16 is where I get my title. We may receive mercy and find grace to help. There it is, finding help in our time of need. We can find the help that we need in Jesus. Now this text here has two commands, and these two commands form my outline this morning. The first is in verse 14. Hold fast our confession. Or hold fast your confession. You see it there at the end of verse 14? Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession the call here. And I say, well, what does, what does confession mean? Well, it doesn't mean confession of sins like you need to disclose your 
faults and your failures with others. That's not the point of this word. This word is more talking about our profession. It means let's hold fast to everything that we believe. Churches have confessions of faith. And that's what we're talking about. Substance of what we believe. Sometimes they're called doctrinal statements. Down, down through the ages, there's always been confessions of faith. There's the, the Westminster Confession and the Helvetic Confession. There's the, the London Baptist Confession. And they go on and on. They're confessions of faith. And each one of these confessions are carefully worded documents seeking to explain the truths of Scripture, how we see the Scripture and how we interpret it. But what the writer here, the Hebrews, talking about goes far beyond just a doctrinal statement. It's not, he's not asking us to embrace all the subtleties of the faith. He's talking about embracing Jesus and all that He is with our whole heart. He's not, he's not interested in, okay, what's the, your view of the role of women in church? Or, or what's your ministry methodology? Or do you believe the Spirit continues on? Or, or what's the timing of end times events? That's not what He's talking about. Though those are in confessions of faith. He's talking about just grabbing and laying hold of Jesus for all that He is and who He is. We see that in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Right? We confess that Jesus is our apostle sent from God. We confess that Jesus is our high priest. He's the one upon whom we've placed our faith. He's the one we confess before men. He was sent from God as He's our apostle. And He... He intercedes for us because He is our High Priest. And we confess that Jesus. We believe upon Him. Again, that word is used. You can turn over to chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. We profess that our hope is in Jesus and in Him alone. We confess that our faith is upon His faithful promises, we confess Jesus and believe upon Him. That's the sense of the word used in the text. Our our confession here is the substance of their faith. Not a doctrine written on a piece of paper, but a living person, Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus, who He is, what He has done. Notice here that we're called to hold fast our confession. It means that we need to embrace it. We need to cherish it. We need to love it. We need to bring it close to us and say we are holding on to Jesus with all of our might. It means that we grip the realities of Jesus in such a way that we will never let go. By this, the writer is telling us to hold that everything is true in Jesus. Everything is true about our salvation. Everything that's true about the great realities of our faith. That's what Jesus is about, right? You see it right there on the screen. Jesus is better He's better, right? So press on. Hold fast. Could be a good synonym there. And and the book of Hebrews even starts this way. Chapter 1, verse 2. It speaks about how in these last days, unlike the prophets, which were many and spoke in very different ways, Jesus is the final revelation of God. He is, as chapter 1, verse 2 says, the heir of all things. Everything belongs to Jesus because He created the world. That's what it says in chapter 1, verse 2. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of a nature. This is, Jesus is the Son of God. He is seated at the right hand of God. See, Jesus isn't merely some obscure Jew who lived in the first century. No, He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. 
He is greater in majesty and power than the angels because it says in chapter 1, verse 6, that the angels are to bow down and worship Him. He's better than Moses, the great, is, the great leader of Israel, because Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is head over the house, the son of the house. In weeks to come, we're going to see that he's better than Aaron. That's next week. He's better than Melchizedek, chapter 7. His covenant's better than any covenant. His sacrifice is better than any sacrifice. We ought to place our hope and trust upon Him, the author and perfecter of our faith, and grab it. It is fitting, as it says here in chapter 4, verse 14, our text, that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the glorious One. He's the mighty, high, exalted One who, by the way, also significant in our confession of Jesus, is His death. It says in chapter 2, verse 14, that He partook of flesh, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and the Son of God, high, lofty, exalted, came among us and died so as to become our mediator to bring us to Him. And that's the idea, that He he is our mediator. Chapter 9, verse 15, Fifteen, and, and that's what this word high priest is talking about. Look at verse 14 again. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, this is the reason why we need to hold fast our confession because of the greatness of how great Jesus is. He is identified here as the great high priest. In weeks to come, we'll look at high priests. It is the topic of chapter 5, high priests are. It is the topic in many ways of much of chapter 7 and so much so that the writer says in chapter 8, verse 1, this is the main point in what has been said. We have such a high priest who has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So it's all leading up to saying, hey, we have this great high priest and according to the logic of verse 14, since we have this great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. That's what he says calls us to understand a little bit about high priests. In the days of the apostles, the high priest played an important role. Every year there was one man selected to be the high priest to come before God into the Holy of Holies representing the whole nation. Our nation's hope, Israel's nation's hope was upon that one man to go into the Holy of Holies to offer up the sacrifice. A modern day equivalent of that might be the way Roman Catholics look at the Pope. He's the one man in this world who is basically the mediator between us and God. That's what the Roman Catholics believe. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying there's lots of priests. There are fewer bishops overseeing those. There are fewer cardinals overseeing them. But there's only one pope, the most, quote-unquote, holy man upon the earth, the vicar of Christ, Christ's representative upon earth. But... And so I think about the high priest in the Jewish day. They would be like Catholics thinking about the Pope. But what's interesting here is that Jesus puts all those high priests to a shame because He calls Jesus the great high priest. He is the one who is higher than any priest. He is the one, if you will, higher than any Pope. He makes all the Popes seem as meaningless as really they are. But Jesus is so high, what He's basically doing is shattering the Levitical system, saying, we have this great high priest who's better than all of them. And we'll see even in chapter 9 how great He is because He continues forever. And He's the one that is there. But what's 
also true about Jesus, as lofty as He is. He wasn't merely an earthly high priest. He was a heavenly high priest as well. Look at what verse 14 says. He has passed through the heavens. That's significant. That's significant. Every other priest passed through the veil, which is essentially a curtain to get into the Holy of Holies, to offer up the sacrifice, and then came back down here to earth. Was here on earth the whole time. But Jesus passed through a different veil into the heavenly Holy of Holies. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but He entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He went through the veil of His death into the true tabernacle from which the earthly tabernacle was merely a type, merely a pattern. Because in chapter 8, we read about how Moses is on the mountain and God says, make everything here according to the pattern which I've shown you on the mountain. There's a pattern, there's a heavenly pattern upon which the earthly tabernacle was just a shadow because Jesus has entered the, the great tabernacle for us. See, the, the ministry of Jesus isn't merely an earthly ministry, it's a heavenly one. And furthermore, it didn't just appease God like the high priests they went in with the sacrifice just trying to appease God. This one not, not only appeased Him, but brought us to God. And I say, church family, hold fast our confession. Hold it fast. Don't let Jesus slip through your fingers. Don't let go of Jesus' His work. This person are greater than anything else on earth. There is a reason why Paul would say, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the cross is everything. We ought not to boast in anything else. We ought to boast in Jesus. It's through His suffering that Jesus brings us to God. It's through His work on the cross that we're washed clean of all of our sins. There's nothing, there is no one who can top Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Hold fast your confession. And you need to understand the original context here is that for these people, they were in danger of returning to their Judaism, complete with its sacrifices and ceremonies and feasts and festivals. He's writing these words for a reason because these people were in Judaism and, and they, they turned away from that and they'd entered the church and here was Jesus. And they were, in some sense, like my daughter Stephanie was. Do I, do I stay in church or do I go to children's notes? Do I, do I take Jesus as my Messiah or do I take the Jewish feasts and festivals? Or, or what do I do? And they were, they, were, they were in indecision. And the writer here is saying, no, Jesus is far better than anything back there. So you put all in. You know, Texas Hold'em poker, I think there's something, I don't know. You're all in, you know. We're all in with Jesus is what we are. That's what He's calling us to do. Be all in for Christ. And, and I say, just as the Jews of the first century had a warning that they need to hear, we also have a warning to hear as well. There are things that can, that can cause us to waffle as well. Other false religions, but I'm not sure you're all in the danger of false religions. I think that the danger is a little bit more subtle than that. I mean, humanism is something that pervades our culture. I think that that can so infiltrate us so much that we believe in the power of man. Our own freedom, our own destiny. We get to do our own thing rather than realizing we're in submission to a holy God. I mean, our sight all around us. We've built the skyscrapers. We've sent men into 
space. We can conquer it all. Why do we need Jesus? And oftentimes people's religion is that Jesus kind of comes alongside and helps. Like I'm doing my thing and then Jesus kind of comes beside me and He's doing His thing with me. That's not how it is. It's you're doing your thing and you realize I can't, I can't do anything more and you throw yourself on Jesus and you cling to Him and He clings to you and takes you throughout life and eternity. It's just a, a life of constant trust in Him. There are other things that can pull us away. We can, we can even be pulled away by our religious deeds. We can think about, oh, but look at me. I, I attend church every Sunday and I'm reading my Bible and look, and look at how good I am. And I'm not, I'm not out there sinning with the rest. And what happens is, rather than just clinging to Jesus for our hope and our righteousness, we're, we're again just taking Jesus, boy, you're helping me get the rest of the way to God, but I'm doing pretty good. Look at all the ways I'm getting here. And that's not what the writer's saying. He's saying throw all your lot into Jesus and you just hold on to Him with all of your might. Then the church, there are influences that can pull you away. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid, Paul says, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds also will be led astray for the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He's saying, I'm fearing for you that you, you'd be swayed away from simplicity and devotion to Christ. And that's what I'm telling you this morning. So the text is just throw it all in with Jesus. It's simple devotion to Him. That is our confession. Other churches can, can harm rather than help. My wife and a couple of children were in a church building yesterday. And uh, Vaughn was telling me about this scene. Is that on the, on the back of the stage, there was a big six foot, seven, eight foot football helmet on this side. And on this side, there was another football helmet. Can you, can you, can you maybe guess what teams were represented there by the football helmets? Maybe. Who? Who, Jared? How did you know? Did you go to that same church too? No, how'd you know that? It's the world, right? I mean, this is the greatest sporting event of the year, right? The, the Super Bowl. There's nothing wrong with the Super Bowl, I, I hope. I hope to watch it today. Um, but in front of this, these, these helmets, Avon said there were like 20, 30, 40 jerseys. Were they Saints and Colts jerseys? Or was all types of jerseys, so like Erlacher jerseys and Hester jerseys and Favre jerseys and all that kind of stuff. Uh, football jerseys, all out. And then, and then you said in front of that there was some even some more football paraphernalia, like what? Cups and all this kind of thing. Now, I, I'm trying to believe the best about this church. You know, maybe it's like these are our idols, right? And we need to get rid of them. Maybe they're going to burn them after church. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe they're going to make some spiritual comparison in terms of, um, you know, here's the spiritual battle we're going to fight. I, I think there's something good the church is trying to do, all right? I'm not, I'm not I'm just, I'm, love believes all things, right? That's what I'm going to do. But I'm thinking about the people who go away from that church service this morning, what are they going to be thinking? They're just going to be thinking about the Super Bowl. And I, I desperately want us, Rock Valley Bible Church, when we go away every Sunday, let's just think about Jesus and His glories, right? I received an email from somebody this week. In the weekly word, I, I passed out uh, the words that song we sang, Jesus, my great high priest. Listen to what this email said, and then I really want you to even be challenged by um, just your mindset with things. So, Steve, 
All I wanted to say to you is how Christ-centered that new song is. Who picked it out? I don't know how I ever found pleasure in songs at our old church that were more of concert quality rather than humble, truth-revealing quality. If it's you that picked it out, thanks. Well, thanks to Vaughn for picking that out. And we certainly have much needs for quality okay, in our music. The fact that I'm singing, playing guitar speaks to the fact that we need quality more at Rock Valley Bible Church. I'm not saying that. And, and we need to seek excellence in that. But at the end of the day, what do we want? Do we want people saying, wow, that's a great music? We want people to say, our Savior is excellent. And we'll always just focus our songs upon Christ and His redemption. That's what we want as a church. We want to be in the business of directing people to Jesus. As a pastor, I know I can't solve your deepest problems. I can't give you the deepest joys. I can't. I can't overcome your sins. I can't. But I do know the one who can give you help with all of those things. So if you're looking at finding help, I'm just going to say find help in Jesus, not in me. And we as a church need to be about directing people to the one who ultimately can help us. It's Jesus. So you need help? Jesus can help you. So hold fast to Him. Don't let Him go. And in verse 15, we see one of the ways Jesus helps us. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. Look at verse 15. For, because, right, hold fast our confession. Not only do we have a great high priest, but this high priest, described here in verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are. This starts off with a double negative. We do not have a priest who cannot sympathize. Anytime you have a double negative, you can just put both those positives. Right? I'm trying to teach my son that in mathematics. Right? If you have a minus parentheses, minus 3, that's the same as a plus a positive 3. Right? Do you know that? Maybe you all struggle with algebra as well. That's okay. But a double negative, you can put as a positive and just say it this way, is that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. Now, do you realize how blessed we are? That we have a high priest who can sympathize with us? Imagine what it would be like if we didn't have a God who sympathized with us. Try to just think about it. Imagine we, what would it be like if God didn't take into account that we are weak in flesh, but that He demanded of us that we be like Him. What do you think, imagine what it would be like if God didn't have compassion for us like a, a father does for his child? Just try to imagine that and then you'll realize how thankful and blessed we are. Sometimes we're so ingrained in our Christian culture that we just take these things for granted that God's going to receive us and take us when we come. And that's true. But, but I don't think we realize the full blessing of that unless we think about what it would be like if that was gone. I think we would be like a child whose parents always demand perfection aren't allowing for anything else less than that. We'd be exasperated by God. 
The child just gives up because he can't ever meet parents' qualifications. We would be angry, provoked to anger all the time because we just can't satisfy him just as some fathers can do with their children as well, being hard and demanding. But alas, that's not the case. We have a sympathetic high priest who will feel with us in our distress. And I just say, church family, let that sink in. We don't have a God who's far off, long away from us. We don't have a God who's uncaring towards us. We have a God who has dwelt with us and lived among us and knows firsthand of our trials and our hardships and therefore can sympathize with us. That's the first half of verse 15. Now the second half of verse 15 speaks about how He can help us, which is the theme of verse 16. But look what it says. He says, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are. So, he can sympathize with us and he can help us is what the end of verse 15 is getting at going on to verse 16. Now, can you imagine if these two things didn't go together? He sympathizes with us and he can help us. I mean, if you have somebody who just sympathizes with you but can't help you, it, it's really not a big help at all. Like, for instance, all right, um, my furnace goes out at my house, and so who do I call? I call Dirk, and I say, um, okay, let, let, let's pretend I call somebody else, okay, who's maybe more inept, like I'm calling myself maybe. Who wants to be Mr. Inept? Who's Mr. Inept? Okay, Jared. Okay, I'm calling Jared over there, Mr. Inept, and I say, Jared, Jared, my, my furnace went out in the house. And now what if he does a great job of sympathizing with me? He says, oh, Mr. Brandon, I'm so sorry, your furnace, you must be cold. I say, yes, I'm cold. I've got two sweatshirts and a blanket right now and I'm still chattering. And he says, oh, and, and he sympathizes so much that he starts to have a tear in his eye and just crying for me because he's feeling with me, he's sympathizing with me. And he says, well, let me, let me just comfort you and, and I'll just pray for you. And so I say, okay, thanks. And... Um, he hangs up. <laughs> That's well and good, and I appreciate it. It's hard and wonderful, but apart from helping me, it's like zero good. I'm still cold. I need someone like Dirk who's been there, done that. Oh, I know how furnaces work. Let's check your gas line. Let's figure it all out. Or, you know, if Dirk can't do it, at least you're going to say, well, you need to call this repairman, and he'll come in, and he'll fix it for you. Right? You need to call Garth. Garth, you can do furnaces, right? Yeah, if you have furnace problems, call Garth. Okay, think about, think about you're sick and in bed and not feeling well at all. Think about a sympathizing mother. Who's a good sympathizing mother? You want to be good? Jared. Okay, Jared is your sympathizing mother. So, so Jared sits next to the child and says, Oh, how are you? No, that, that's not, that's not going to work. Let's call Karen. Karen, you rose your hand. So you got someone and, and you have a child there and you say, oh, child, you are so sick. Let me care for you and let me get a washcloth. And you sympathize. You put a washcloth to stop the fever. And he said, let me sit in bed with you. I'll give you plenty of fluids to help you. Just, I'll stay here all night long with you, dear child. So when you wake up, know that I'm right here with you. And that's well and good and that's helpful. But if she doesn't call the doctor... That's not going to help. Or if she doesn't, doesn't figure out whether you need some medicine or, you know, say a bone is broken or whether there's major surgery that needs to take place, that's not going to help. Sympathy without genuine help isn't much help at all. But thankfully, Jesus is both of them. We have a high priest who's been tempted in all things as we are. Thus, he can help us. 
But let's just look at this temptation, how this qualifies him to help. In everything, as Jesus was tempted, he came away victorious. That's the point of verse 15. One has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus faced the world's greatest trials and temptations. He was tempted by Satan himself at the very moment of his greatest weakness in the wilderness. He was abandoned by all of his closest followers. He was unjustly condemned to death and went upon the cross. He was mocked by those who saw him. When being reviled, though, he was sinless. He didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him with judges righteously. 1 Peter 2.23 He was abandoned by God on the cross when he needed God the most. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Right? The worst of it is coming. The, the wrath, the sins of men are coming upon me. It's the worst. I need you now. And God abandoned him at that time, and yet he still did not sin. And the wonderful thing is that Because he didn't sin, through the worst of temptations, he's the one who's perfectly qualified to help you in your temptation. Now, that might not be obvious, but but here's the truth. Because Jesus endured temptation and never gave in, he can help you all along the path of the way, wherever you are. Like, think about it this way. Imagine with me a man who's running a marathon all 26 miles, 385 yards. And uh, he's been through this before and he knows he's run along and you know hits about mile 20. I'm not sure where the brick wall is, the 20-mile mark or whatever. It's probably all along the way, but hits, hits the mark, hits the wall, and his legs are aching, his knees are aching, his lungs are burning, he's fatigued and tired. His body is saying, please stop, please stop, please stop. This is, this is hurting me, please stop. And the longer he keeps running... The, the more that dwells up in him, and pretty soon his body's screaming at him, Stop the running! But see, the one who reaches the finish line all the way is the one who's best qualified to come alongside of someone who hits the wall at 18 miles and says, Yes, I've done this before. Come on, I know how, to, I know how it feels. Yep, I've run this before. You can keep doing it. You just press on through and you'll be okay. Because he never gave in and stopped at the 18 mile mark. He took it through to completion all the way until the end. And and so it is with sin. The longer one endures temptation and continues to obey God, rather than the flesh, the temptation grows and grows and grows and grows until the final release. A marathon runner that's passing the finish line. With Jesus, it was when Satan finally departed. With Jesus, it was when the mockers who came up and mocked at Him carried on with their business while He was upon the cross. Maybe it even was when He died. He went all the way to the end, faithful unto death. And the one who endures until the end without giving in has overcome the strongest of temptations. And that's what Jesus is. He knows how to conquer sin. And He knows how to help us conquer sin as well. And that's then my next point in verse 16. Because Jesus has been through it, has been tempted and successful... My second point this morning, we should hold fast our confession. Point number one. Point number two, draw near with confidence. You can see right there. Therefore, this is the conclusion. Since Jesus has been tempted, hasn't sinned, we ought to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Again, the issue before the original readers of this letter was one of assurance. They left Judaism. They come into the church following Jesus, their Messiah. But there came this influence from outside the church trying to attract them back to the Mosaic ways. And I'm sure they heard every argument in the book saying, hey, Moses told us to, to offer sacrifices. We need to offer bulls and goats for atonement. Are, are you sure that one sacrifice can solve all your sin problem? Come back here. Do more of them. Or another voice said, look at what you believe. Look at what your new belief has brought you to. You, you, you have tribulation now. You have persecution. That's not God's plan, is it? So I'm thinking about, about going back. Or they say, you've forsaken the religion of your fathers. Come back to your heritage. Come back to the temple. And there's, there's a pull. And, and certainly I would bet some doubt had crept into some of their minds. And, and the writer says this, no, no, draw near to God with confidence. Not with doubt, but with confidence. Be sure that everything that I told you about Jesus is true. Jesus is better than anything you left behind in discerning your Judaism. You don't need to go back. You can have confidence in approaching Jesus. He hears you. He's ready to help. Because His throne, as it says in verse 16, is a throne of grace. And again, I just say that's one of those statements that we can become too familiar with. We just assume Jesus will receive us. We'll just assume His, His grace will be graceful. And yet to the Jews, the original readers, they knew of intimacy with God as David taught them in the Psalms. They knew they could pray to God, but there was also a very terrifying aspect as well. Because when Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire before the Lord, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. When the men of Beth Shemesh looked into the ark, more than 50,000 men were struck dead that day. When Uzzah touched the ark, God struck him dead. When Isaiah came into God's presence, he says, Woe is me, I'm undone. There's a very fearful, boy, can I get there? But, but now the, the, the throne of God is depicted here as a throne of grace. Now certainly you read Revelation and there's a fearful aspect of the throne. Even the, the wrath of God coming in Revelation chapter 6 up from the throne, you, you see that there for sure. But in Jesus, we, we have the, the side of the throne or the, the door of the throne which is His graceful side. As we approach in Jesus, we approach a throne of grace. It's not that the wrath is gone, it's still there. It's not that God has changed and become a nicer God. Rather, it's like we sang today. It's Jesus brings His righteousness and pleads for us before the throne of the Father. And it's hidden in Jesus that we can come and find a throne of grace. And we come to that throne, we're lavish with God's goodness towards us. You know, one of the most stunning verses in all of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Why don't you turn over there? Look at it. It speaks about, it's fitting for us, verse 26. I'm sorry, verse 25. Therefore, it speaks about the difference between Jesus and the priest, and we'll get into this in, in future months to come, but verse 25, Therefore, Jesus is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Those who draw near to God through Jesus can be saved forever. He can keep you. He can save you forever. Jesus is always praying for us. This is His full-time job. Say, so what job does Jesus have? Well, He's sustaining the universe, yes, but He's also praying before the Father on our behalf. 
After dying for our sins, he's taken his seat at the right hand, assumed his role of pleading his blood before the throne of the Father on our behalf. He looks down upon the way we sin and says, Father, remember my blood covered that. Father, remember my blood covered that. 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 And he protects us and hides us. That's what Jesus' job always is. And when one of us, as it says back in, in our text again, chapter 4, verse 16, when we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, when we pray to God, Jesus is like, hey, I was just praying for you. Glad you stopped by. What do you need? And he gets it. And what is it that we need? Verse 16 shows the two things that we need. I want to press these things in your mind. We need mercy and we need grace. That's what we need. As you walk through life, you need mercy and you need grace. Mercy is going to help you with the sins you committed so God's, God's wrath doesn't come upon you. And grace is going to help empower you to live the way that you need to live. Give you the strength we desperately need. And so I ask you, who among you needs mercy? Who among you needs grace? The answer is, all of us need mercy and all of us need grace. Okay, so let's try that. Who of you need mercy? Everyone raise your hand, right? And who of you need grace? All of us need grace, absolutely. Well, Jesus has promised to give that to us. So we ought to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. I just ask you, do you go there? Do you go to the throne of grace with confidence? Do you know that Jesus bids you to come to Him? Do you know that Jesus is waiting for your arrival? That's what these words are about. They're about praying. They're about coming to Jesus. I simply ask you, do you pray? Do you seek His mercy and grace? Is there a time you set aside in your day to pray? Or perhaps more importantly, I think, do you live your life with an attitude of prayer? I think that's the way we ought to live. We ought to just walk in through life just always saying, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. I mean, the, the longer I've lived, the more this is my prayer to God. God, I just need help. I just need help. We need help. Constantly praying to Jesus. I need mercy, God. I need grace. That's the spirit of Paul's command. Pray without ceasing. He calls us. Pray without ceasing. How do you do that? Just constant communion with the Lord. Just, just God, I need help. I need help. And a, and a great example of that comes in Nehemiah. I think it's chapter 2 when, when uh, he heard about Jerusalem and the walls were down and the city was desolate and he came before the king. It's the cupbearer sad. He said, why, why are you sad? Can I do anything for you? And it says there that Nehemiah he prayed and he spoke to the Lord. So it's like he prayed, offered up a prayer and spoke to the Lord. It's how we ought to pray all the time. Just constantly. You know, whether, whether you're in a business, say, hey, I've got a customer in front of me. God, help me to say the right things I need to say. Whether you're fatigued on the job and you say, God, give me help, give me mercy. Whether you're a mother, fatigued with your children at home. I know that you mothers need this. God, give me grace to help me be patient with my children. You, wherever you are, in whatever circumstances, when the trials are coming, subtly, as small or as big as they are, I know that Jesus can help you overcome those things. So let me ask you then, why don't we come to Jesus as often as we ought? I think two reasons. First of all, because we're not holding fast our confession. As verse 14 says, 
And second is because we don't see ourselves in need. Why is it that those who are in the greatest need are closest to the Lord? It's because they realize their need. And we need to understand our need. See our need that we might run to Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. And so live in constant communion with God. That should take place on a daily basis. And this morning, we have an opportunity to celebrate communion with the Lord. It's the Lord's Supper. But that is a way in which we can commune with the, the Lord as well. So I'm going to ask the men that they can come and, and, and gather over there. And just let me remind you again what we're doing. We're just remembering the Lord. We are, in, in some sense, this is com- communion with Him. This is something He told us to do. He said, this is my body broken for you. Now, we don't believe it's the physical body of Jesus. But there is something special that goes on when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's called the Eucharist by some churches. The, the, the thanks is what Eucharistio means. It's called communion. It is an opportunity for us to commune with the Lord in a way that we can't just in our homes. As we together remember the Lord, remember His sacrifice. And I just call you even this morning as we think about these things, to, to do what this text says, hold fast our confession and draw near with confidence to Him. So let's bow our heads to prepare for celebrating the supper this morning.